0: Welcome everybody to another episode of the Illusion of Consensus podcast with myself, Rav Arora, independent journalist based in Vancouver, Canada, and Dr. Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford. We're coming together as we've talked about before to help bridge the divide between elite expert scientists and ordinary citizens, and come to a common understanding of complex scientific and epidemiological issues because as we've seen over the past couple of years, there's been a lot of misleading information, there's been a lot of people spreading false information, a lot of people pretending like there is a consensus on a given number of issues when in fact there is far more complexity in those issues. So we're, we're happy to uh, bring this, this episode to you here. Um, this, we're, we're recording this just a couple of days before we're formally launching. Um, on Tuesday or Wednesday in a couple days at the start of the month here in May. And uh, we have a range of topics to talk about today. Um, but first of all, Jay, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing okay, Rob. Let's talk to you again.
0: Yeah, we're, we're going to launch this thing in a couple days. So people will be listening to this widely and sharing and hopefully stirring a new conversation about these complex topics. So I'm excited for where this project is going to take us.
1: Yeah, I think it'll be fun to have a community of people interacting uh, with us on, on this, uh, and I think uh, the, the the kind of things that we're addressing, um, you know, people are going to be interested in this for for a very long time. Um, the the uh, the this, the pandemic, I think, has laid bare very clearly that uh, on many topics of interest to people, of importance to the lives of people in medicine. Uh, the idea of scientific consensus is, is, is overblown. Um, and, in, and in particular, I think it's important that we, 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 we highlight leaders that make statements that, is, that assert positions of scientific consensus when, in fact, those, that scientific consensus doesn't exist. I mean, it's, it's really, it's like people like Tony Fauci, people like Rochelle Walensky, the head of the CDC and others, uh, making statements that are so f- are far beyond what the science actually says, they're abusing their position, uh, s- pretending to the public that they have science behind them when they don't. And I think that that's really going to be the major uh, thing that our podcast will will help inform people when it is the case that scientific leaders go out beyond the, uh, you know, like the like, like go, go beyond the, where, where they really uh, should go, given where the science is.
0: So we have a number of topics to talk about that pertain to this particular issue. Um, Let's start with uh, Fauci in this recent uh, PBS documentary uh, came out a few weeks ago, where you see Fauci going door to door in Washington, D.C. This was right when the vaccines were rolled out in twenty twenty one. And as there's a lot of video footage that got played on Twitter. Lots of people were talking about it and he's going door to door and you know telling people to get vaccinated. And, and many people predominantly in these clips, African-American folks were expressing a lot of skepticism and uncertainty about vaccination. And I, I will say <laughs> in, in retrospect um, and, and certainly at the time, if, if I was watching it, it does appear that many of these, these ordinary people were far more sensible and rational in their views than Fauci was, because you know Fauci was going around door to door saying that if if you get so I'm going to read out this quote he says on the very 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 rare chance that you do get it COVID even if you're vaccinated uh, you you don't even feel sick it's like you don't even know you got infected it's very very good at protecting you and he goes on and knocks on various doors and tells people that this vaccine basically stops transmission, excluding a very rare set of cases. And so therefore, you should get it to protect yourself. And to those around you, I believe in one of the other clips, he's talking to a mother and saying that you should get vaccinated to protect your kids. Um, And I think vice versa as well, you should get your get your kids vaccinated to protect you. And so this rationale was used at the time to justify a lot of the mandates and and many of the people who he was talking to were expressing a lot of skepticism, uh, saying that, well, how long has this vaccine been tested? Do we know for sure that it stops transmission? And, and, and Mayor Bowser in Washington, D.C., who was going with Fauci door-to-door, she, she said another thing that has turned out to be false. She said, but if thousands of people like you don't get vaccinated, you're going to let this virus continue to percolate in this country and in this world. She said that when talking to um, uh, an, a young African-American man in one of these neighborhoods that they were knocking on. So, 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 Jay, what, what do you what do you make of this, of these public health experts? First, what, what do you make of going door to door and promoting something that, let's say, hypothetically might be very uh, effective? Or, or or let's say if there was evidence, long term evidence showed high safety, high efficacy, um, clear evidence of benefit for many of these people, you know, what are the optics of doing something like that? And then secondly, what do you make of the fact that many of these claims that were being made at the time have turned out to be totally false?
1: Okay, on, on, on the first thing about what going to door-to-door, you know, I'm I don't I'm not one of these people that, that's particularly uh, – uh, I mean, I, I guess I'm pragmatic about public health, right? So if, if you have a, a – vac- like, let's take your hypothetical. Say so you have a vaccine that's incredibly safe, incredibly effective – um, and it's protecting against a disease that's quite deadly. Uh, I I don't think you actually would need to go door to door. I think you you just would tell people this. People would see that the that the that uh, in their in their own lives uh, that that the vaccine wasn't causing any harms. People would see that the, that in their own lives that that, that the uh, the vaccine was the, the people that got the vaccine weren't dying, and the people that were I mean they could see it with their own eyes for a very very deadly disease um the 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 problem is that uh is that it and and actually you do not even need to go to the door to door if you had uh, a public health authority in which the public trusted right so for instance in sweden i don't think they went door to door because they didn't need to they just the public health authorities uh, are trusted by the people of sweden and so when they make some announcement that's within the science they trust that that the announcement they are is within what the science actually says um and, they, and they, they, you know, they, they listen or, you know, they don't, they're not, they're not forced. Um, what happened here is you have uh, communities of people in the United States that do not trust public health uh, and with very good reason. Like in the United States, there's a long history of, of African-American communities being harmed by public health. You know, the Tuskegee experiment is probably the most famous example, but you could think of others. Um, and so you have a, a baseline of distrust of public health authority and public health statements inside major communities inside the United States. Um, so the, the, so the, I, I, now, if you told me that you had this fantastically safe and effective vaccine, and again, this very deadly disease, and you have a distrusting pub, uh, community, and then you told me that going door-to-door was an effective way to do it, I would be in favor of that. Of, of of like convincing people that this is a, this is a this is a good thing to do, but you have but there's a moral premise to that, right? When you're going to use that kind of persuasion, you actually have to be very firmly rooted in the facts. You can't state things you don't know for certain, uh, and you can't uh, you can't coerce by telling noble lies. You can't use fear mongering. You have to you have to reason with people like adults. So I, I'm not so much. Unhappy with the tactic, but I am really, really unhappy with the substance of what Mayor Bowser and what uh, Tony Fauci was saying. Now, I can excuse a politician that says, "Oh, don't we mustn't?" Uh, you know, you, 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 that says some scientific thing incorrectly. I mean, maybe they, they just didn't understand what their advisors were saying, or, or or what or whatnot. I mean, they they have a responsibility to try to get it as correct as possible, but it's it's understandable to me, anyways. On the other hand, Tony Fauci. Going door to door, telling people that it's very very rare that you're you're going to get the disease if you are vaccinated in early 2021. Well, he didn't know that. The randomized trials for the vaccines that had been just published in December of 2020. Well, they never looked or checked for prevention of disease transmission. Instead, what those trials checked for was prevention of symptomatic infection for two months. Well, it's not the same thing as preventing any infection. You can have a very mild, uh, a, 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 a asymptomatic infection. Like that actually, it happens, uh, you know, like 30, 40% of the time people have a, a get infected, so to speak, but don't have any symptoms. Um, now, you know, would you call that getting sick? Most people wouldn't call it getting sick, but it's, you know, you have the virus in your nose. Um, that's common. You also don't know from the randomized trials whether the the Vaccinate, vaccination stops transmission because they didn't check for that. They could have, for instance, they could have uh, checked to see among the placebo group and the vaccinated group what the likelihood of family members getting sick was. If it's, if the vaccine stopped transmission, then family members in the vaccinated group should have been less sick, but they didn't check for that. So Tony Fauci had the obligation to know that we didn't know at the time, early 2021, whether the vaccine stopped transmission. And so when he's trying to convince people in the, in the Washington, D.C. community that the vaccine is necessary, he should honestly say, well, we don't know if it stops transmission. We think that it stops uh, reduces your risk of, of, get, of dying from the disease. We think that because the, the randomized trial showed that it reduced the risk of symptomatic infection. That would have been within what the science actually showed at the time. Instead, he vastly overstated the case and in in ways that just when you look at those PBS documentary it just makes him look foolish right It makes because it's so clear that the the citizens he's talking with have reasonable questions they are very well informed and he's just giving them lines that he wish were wishes were true but not actually true, uh, relying on the authority that he has as the head of the NIAID thinking that, so that, that they will think that, 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 that they, he, they, they ought to believe him that he's done his homework when he actually hasn't. Well, what's, what's incredible about some of these clips is
0: that you have ordinary people who seem more sensible and more rational than someone with decades of medical and epidemiological experience handling multiple pandemics. Right. These people, they have they seem to have more common sense. And, and this is a this is a broader trend that can be sensed in different political and cultural issues where the quote unquote experts seem to be less in touch with reality than ordinary people do. And one of the things that uh, one of these um, individuals said or these people who uh, felt was knocking the doors on, um, he said, When you start talking about paying people to get vaccinated when you start talking about incentivizing things to get people vaccinated it's something else going on with that and jay i just remember at the time several different uh states counties cities were incentivizing people with the most like ludicrous crazy things i mean in new york i remember um mayor bill de blasio was at a press conference and was eating a cheeseburger and saying listen get vaccinated, we'll get you a cheeseburger, we'll get you fries, we'll get you this or that. I I can't remember all the different things that were used to
1: bring through <laughs> to There was Krispy Kreme. You remember the Krispy Kreme?
0: Yeah, yeah. There was Krispy Kreme. I, I believe there was also, I think this might have been in Oregon, um, where there was potentially um, some kind of voucher to get, like, marijuana. Like, you can go get some weed if you get the vaccine. Like, there, there was, like, crazy incentives. I think there was ice cream in different places and whatnot. But this this individual who Fauci's talking to, he, he's he's right in, in showing some form of concern of why do why does public health have to go to such extreme or, or just just ludicrous levels to incentivize people to get vaccinated? Like, why are more people not getting vaccinated? Right. Like, why do we need cheeseburgers and ice cream and weed to get people vaccinated and and of course many of these things by the way you know many of these things you know fast food ice cream i mean these things you know add to you know you know know, long-term risk factors obviously like an unhealthy diet eating fast food with seed oils etc etc all all these things work against your health in the long term Um, and, and this is what this is one of the things that joe rogan has been you know correct about is like why why weren't you know public health experts saying go get exercise sleep well drink lots of water but you know you supplement with vitamin d and magnesium like, like look after your diet like like a holistic approach to understanding mind and body why was all, why was none of that encouraged but instead you know get your vaccine and here's your cheeseburger and fries
1: i mean it, in a sense rob what they're doing is they're treating adults as if they were children right so if, if you've uh if you uh, you uh, ever took uh you know if you ever go to a pediatrician uh, like they you know I, I remember when i when I was little i'd go to pediatrician or would, my kids were little they'd go to pediatricians and the pediatrician would offer my kids a lollipop if they were good kids during the during the during the visit you know like it's they're essentially treating adult adult as if they're children look if you're if you're good uh, and you do what we're asking you to do uh'll we'll give you we'll give you a lollipop we'll give you you know we'll give you crispy cream we'll give you Fries and and a and a and a, uh, and a and a cheeseburger will give you you know whatever. I mean it's it is um and it's absolutely right for the that man in that PBS video uh, talking to Tony Fauci to say, look, uh, that when you start talking about paying people to get vaccinated, when you start talking about incentivizing people to get vaccinated, something else going on with that. Like it 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 is inherent in the human soul to be suspicious of someone trying to bribe you to do something you don't need to bribe people to be vaccinated. You need to tell people, honestly, here's what we know. Here's why it might be important for you. And here's why, what we know that's that, why, why, it, you know, what risks there are. And then let people take, take the, make the decisions on their own. That's the, that's really the only way. That's what informed consent is about. Um, in fact, in, within, in medical ethics, it's often seen as morally suspect to, to pay people to, 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 uh, to participate in, um, you know, large amounts of money. You participate in risky randomized trials because you're like sort of coercing, in effect, coercing um, uh, people who are who don't have very many mean, high means for to take on risk that no one else would. Uh, and so, I mean, it it has this sort of unsavory flavor to it. Um, and so, you know, I, I just I think that public health they thought about the population as if they were children to be managed rather than adults to be reasoned with. Um, another aspect of of the communication that I think that happened in this in this in this PBS documentary between Tony Fauci and uh, and and the citizens of Washington D.C. is this, uh, and you mentioned this earlier, Rob. They're they're using the idea that you can protect Grandma, that you can protect others in your life. You know, and later they would say you have to get your children vaccinated so that you 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 can be protected. Uh, you know. The problem there is that they didn't know whether the vaccine stopped transmission. And so essentially, again, they're, they're, they're conveying to the public that there's this consensus with When in fact, all it was is an illusion of consensus. There was no consensus that the vaccine would stop transmission. And in fact, short, within a few, a couple of months afterwards of this, of this, uh, this sort of door-to-door effort, it became clear that the vaccines don't stop transmission. Country after country, had that had high vaccination rates, you know, Israel, for example, uh, saw large amounts of disease, of disease transmission in, in late spring, early summer, twenty twenty one. So again, they went far beyond what the the, the science said, and they guessed wrong, and um, you know, I just it's just heartbreaking to watch this in in like essentially like a uh, someone like with forty years or more of at the lead uh, the head of 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 infectious disease, epidemiology, and, and, and public health in the United States make what look to me like rookie mistakes in communication. Reliance on noble lies, uh, weaponizing empathy instead of, instead of just reasoning with people, treating them like adults, telling them what we, what's known and what's not known at the time, rather than trying to uh, paint some p- false picture of, of consensus that, that, that to try to induce them to, to do something. That only works if it works at all for a very short time. Eventually and very quickly, I think people stop trusting you, and that is exactly what you saw when Tony Fauci went out into the neighborhoods of Washington D.C. You saw this distrust. This and it's you know not all of it's his fault. As I said, uh, American public health has a very bad history with the African American community uh, over a long. So the distrust is earned over a long period of time. You know he's going out in the African American community in 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 Washington D.C. But the distrust that many people in the general public now feel around people like Tony Fauci and other public health leaders is fully earned because they feel manipulated. They feel like they were lied to. Uh, and in many ways, they actually were.
0: Just as an aside here, I want to double check because for a second I thought I was making things up. But no, I, I, did, I did remember it correctly. <laughs> there were multiple cities, New York City, Arizona, and Washington, D.C., that did incentivize people to get vaccinated using marijuana. There was a, <laughs> the D.C. Marijuana Justice, a cannabis policy reform group in Washington, D.C., they gave away more than 10,000 free joints at multiple events outside vaccination sites. So there you have it, folks. Get get, get your blunts and get your mRNA vaccines in <laughs>
1: <laughs> i mean why not hand out packs of cigarettes too i mean just the whole thing is just it's just uh heartbreaking to watch like you should not be should not be handing out any of these and like if you if you want to get people to get vaccinated tell them the truth tell them here's the risk of dying from covid for you you know, rough you know if you're an older person it's quite high and while we're not this is January 2021 we don't know for certain that'll it pre- prevent severe disease and death we're, we're we're it seems very likely given the high quality randomized trials we've had that it will pre- reduce your risk of severe disease and death considerably so it's important for you to get it there may be side effects that we don't know about but it may be but we we think it's worth the risk so much so that i i also got vaccinated i mean i think that kind of reasoning treats people like adults treats people like they're, they're that they that it, it, it with with respect and it and it tells people honestly what the what the science actually says and doesn't say, conveys uncertainty. It's really in in, in a way it's not that it's not that complicated. Uh, I, I don't understand why so quickly hmm. people like Tony Fauci went to the noble lie.
0: I'm gonna take a quick detour here before we move on to the next topics. And to just point out that you know, there are other areas and, I'm, and I think we'll explore this in future episodes, and I might invite some experts in various fields and, and talk about these things. But you see here with COVID and with what we just talked about, this problem of, of arrogance and of presumptuousness and of drawing far more broad uh, extrapolations from very limited data and arrogantly telling people that like, we absolutely know with certainty that this is what's going to happen. The vaccines will stop transmission, you know, no serious side effects, etc. I wonder, are there other areas in science where this may also be practiced? Like, like is it is, is it possible that this approach that Fauci had is understandable or, 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 or widely practiced in other areas that I'm taking more and more interest in? Like in, in psychiatry, I've, I've been doing a lot of investigation for, for personal reasons, for, for my own mental health, because I've run into several issues, but also as a journalist who is going to be covering some of these issues in the weeks, months, and years to follow, like the, the way antidepressants, uh, anxiety medications, ADHD medications, I, I'm going to do a big piece on, on ADHD soon, the way these things are handed out like candy, like so so easily and so quickly to anyone who presents, you know, like an inability to focus or you know, some depressive symptoms, there's this approach to, just medical, just just to medicate right away, and to offer these prescription drugs when, you know, many psychiatrists and many psychologists say like like things like antidepressants aren't actually very effective in the long term, have certain side effects, and can potentially prevent you from addressing real, you know, root cause problems such as childhood trauma, inter you know, uh, interpersonal issues, um, you know, other things regarding sleep and exercise and overall. Holistic health. So, so do you do you think that potentially there are other areas in science where scientists are also sort of claiming this level of definitiveness that is not warranted given the current available data?
1: I mean, there's no question. I mean, I, I like for instance, um, Rob, if, if you um, if you've been around medicine at all for 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 any period of time, you you'll notice. That uh, that that pharmaceutical companies have a tremendously important role in in conveying scientific information to doctors. Um, you know they'll 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 show up at uh, your practice and they'll offer you to buy to buy your whole practice lunch, and in exchange for sitting through a lecture. And the lecture you'll get will paint the picture about uh, some drug or some some medical area that, that that a pharmaceutical company wants you to think. Now you know. That is again, I think, completely understandable, uh, and most doctors listening to that understand that they need to adjust their expectations so that they uh, that 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 that, that uh, you know they know they're getting a not a, a, not getting a balanced picture from the pharmaceutical company executive or, or or detailer when they when they when they have that lunch. I mean that that's understandable. Uh, it's it's uh, it happens, but it also happens that people. Um, in in science in medicine, very often adopt ideas without really understanding the the fully the scientific basis for it, and and, uh, and then they make recommendations to their patients as if they know what, what the scientific data show, even though they don't really. They just what they're conveying is this sort of norm in medicine that some some idea is right, uh, and 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 it leads to. Uh, Leads to something, a phenomenon that distresses people all the time when they hear about it, which is that you you get these reversals where for a very long time uh, the the medical community says, "Oh yeah, uh, if you uh, if you if you have a stomach ulcer, it's caused by stress, it's caused by drinking too much coffee, Uh, and so just stop being stressed, stop drinking coffee, and the ulcer will go away." And then uh, someone discovers the fact that, uh, that, oh, it's probably a bacteria. And, and then for decades, people laugh at the the person who's making this discovery. This, by the way, is a true story. There's a, there were Western Australian doctors that found um, in uh, someone named Robin, Marsh, uh, 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 Robin Warren, and then Barry and his student, Barry Marshall found that H. pylori causes ulcers. When I was in medical school, I was taught that it was stress that caused ulcers, and that there was this sort of fringe idea. Um, but now, you know, when most people, when most doctors would talk to their patients, they wouldn't tell them about this uncertainty in the medical literature about what actually causes ulcers. They just say, well, your life is too stressful, reduce the stress, the ulcer will go away. You see this happen all the time in medicine. Um, I mean, part of it is, you know, you, 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 the medical literature and the scientific literature is complex part of the job of public health professionals of doctors is to simplify the the, the some of the complexities the 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 rest relevant ones so that uh, the patients who come to doctors for advice can feel like, don't don't have to like read the full literature themselves unless they want to Right, I mean, we're going to the doctors because we expect the doctors to have read the literature and then give you and give you advice based on their professional opinion about the literature. And but you also expect the doctors and public health professionals to convey to you uncertainties. Um, you know, when I went to medical school, I, I it was I had one of my very favorite teachers. He told me that uh, you know half of what you learn in medical school is false. And, you know, like, you, what would you ask him if, if you were there in my, in my shoes, Rob? I, I, the natural thing would be, well, which half? Um, and he said, well, we don't know. Um, you'll find out over time. I mean, I, I think um, that a certain degree of humility, I mean, just belongs in medicine and in public health. The public needs to know that we are not in medicine and public health. We're not, uh, you know, we're not we're not magicians. We don't have, when we don't have knowledge, we should say that we don't have that knowledge. Uh, and I think uh that, that in in the long run would build a lot more trust and it's okay to to uh, sort of characterize and simplify topics in ways that respect the uh, the 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 the, uh, the intelligence and the ethics and and the, the desires of the of the people that you're seeing and talking with uh, but it's not okay to run roughshod over uncertainty when it's there
0: mm. and is this quote from John Yanidis, by the way, something like 80% of scientific findi- findings can't be replicated? Is, is that his quote that I'm thinking of? Or was that
1: what you were referring to? No. That, well, so what I was referring to was like just folk wisdom within medicine. Uh, John Yanides had a, a very famous paper uh, which, is, which said that 95% of all scientific papers are wrong. Mm. Uh, all published scientific papers are wrong. Um, it's actually, it's, I think, one of his most famous papers, um, and it sort of set off a, a whole range of reform ideas within science, including the replicability crisis. Uh, and you know, different fields, the the, level, the rates of scientific papers not being replicable are different depending on the standards of the field. But um, I think John wrote that paper in the in the early two thousands. Ninety five percent of scientific papers are wrong. I think a lot of uh, a lot of of the problems we've seen during the pandemic just stem from a lack of humility by scientists and people in public health. Science is not magic. Science is a process, the, the, the best process humans know of, of getting at true things. But it doesn't mean that at every moment, everything that that, uh, that is in the scientific literature or what top scientists believe is true. Uh, in fact, that's not the case. And if scientists are, and public health officials and doctors started acting like that, they're, they're afraid that they would lose their status. In fact, I think it's the opposite. I think people would start trusting scientists more, start trusting public health more, start trusting doctors more.
0: So the main takeaway here is that not just in COVID, but science broadly, right? Clinicians, medical professionals in general should be more humble with the means that they have and be more honest and rigorous about various tools and medications that they're using and acknowledge oftentimes when there is uncertainty about uh, long-term safety or efficacy or certain side effects. Like many of these things are often obscured and not properly understood. And you have, you know, medical professionals who don't disclose many of these things sometimes or don't properly express the uncertainty. So it's, it's important for you know, people with that power and with you know that uh, ability to help save lives to be clear about you know you know risk reward ratios and uh, you know I, I think that's really important moving moving forward because a lot of people have lost trust in public health uh, authorities and even sometimes their own doctors and I, I, I think it is it is the job of, of medical professionals to to, to, you know, create better relationships with their patients and and be honest about what exactly they know and what they don't know. And I, I think from, from a broader kind of cosmic perspective, like, you know, it, this is kind of a part of human nature where people get too closely married to their own ideas or to things that they're recommending or things in their practice. Like, there should be a level of detachment between, you know, a family doctor and the various pharmaceuticals and medications he's, you know, using and not be so – um, you know, zealous in promoting certain you know medications and being open, like, well, these are the tools we have. These are the different procedures and treatments we can look at, and these are also the risks and all and and some of the uncertain outcomes that we, we need to still figure out. I think that's a far more uh, reasonable approach than people who, I, I guess, get too married to um, the, the you know their practice and what sort of guidelines, rules, and, uh, uh, you know, various norms in, in medical practice that they have to follow, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what? like and a related idea around this, you know, once upon a time it was pretty, pretty common for doctors to, to actually support the idea of getting second opinions for very, very important medical decisions that had to get made. Like patients would be encouraged to go find a second doctor, who would render an independent opinion on whether you know some some drug or treatment or therapy or, uh, w- or surgery or whatever is warranted? Um, I think that's still common in medicine um, as a norm. And professionally, a doctor who um, has a patient that goes that seeks second opinion shouldn't hold it against the, that patient. It's that patient's right. In fact, that's patient's responsibility to themselves to be to to, to, to understand the full range of of medical thinking on the the the, the, the subject of that, that patient's health, right? Second opinions are a good thing. Um, in public health, what what's happened? Uh, and you saw this in that in that uh, in that in that, cl- that uh, uh, clip with uh, the PBS clip we just talked about, um, with Fauci going door to door. You you see a man who doesn't want a second opinion was insulted by the very notion of a second opinion, right? remember he very famously says uh, in one of his interviews that uh, if you question me, you are not simply questioning a man, you are questioning science itself. Well, I mean, like, can you imagine that, Rav? Like, can you imagine somebody that thinks that he embodies science to such an extent that anyone who questions him is not even just, you know, debating a fact or about some about the, you know, whether the vaccines protect against transmissibility, they're questioning the, whole enti- the entire process of science itself simply for the act of questioning a man. You have to have a spirit of humility that permits second opinions if you're going to be an effective professional in public health or in medicine.
0: Okay, let's move on to the next topic. Um, actually, okay, I'm just going to... I'm, I'm to take this out, but I just want to mention, Jay... Yeah, you're clicking with your mouse. The sound is coming through to the audio, which which distracts from the conversation. So okay, if, I'm
1: sorry. I'll I'll stop doing that.
0: Yeah, yeah. You can you can also um, so when I'm talking, you can mute your mic. And you know, usually I mute my mic in case I'm, I'm pulling up a link or something. So you can just mute yourself when you're not talking.
1: Okay, we'll that's do. So,
0: that's always helpful. Yeah, so I'll I'll take this part out of the conversation. Okay, let's move on to the next topic. There was an analysis that uh, came out last year claiming that 300,000 uh, COVID deaths could have been averted through vaccination. Multiple articles in NPR, ABC News, recently uh, Dr. Peter Hotez, I believe today or yesterday, you know, tweeted this out. Many, many esteemed pub, uh, public health experts, um, epidemiologists, uh, immunologists have tweeted this out and, and share this to the public you know, showing how uh, tremendously beneficial uh, vaccination is and how, you know, deadly vaccine hesitancy is and how many people, um, you know, their lives could have been saved if they had gotten vaccinated. And so, you know, Jay, you and I talked a bit before this conversation um, about digging into this, and I was curious about your thoughts on this and whether you think uh, this figure is as reliable, concrete, and authoritative as many public health professionals are claiming.
1: Well, Rob, I looked into this. Um, so it, it, this, is a, this was a, uh, made the rounds in the news, I think in May of last year in 2022. And it was, a, it, it was reporting on a preprint paper that was published, uh, that, that was put out as a preprint. Had not, in other words, it had not yet gone through peer review. In fact, as far as I can tell, it's still not published in, in a peer review journal but was, was written by, you know, people in Microsoft, uh, uh, some people at, at MGH, which is, you know, Mass General Hospital, and at Brown University. So, um, and what the team did is they made certain assumptions. They said, okay, uh, through April of 2021, or 2022, uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, I, th- I think uh, it's something like... Um, seventy percent of the uh of the of the of the, the, the adult population has been vaccinated have been vaccinated um uh you know i think it's like some more like 80, almost eighty percent of the adult population vaccinated forty three percent of children are vaccinated what if it had been the case that eighty five percent of the adult population had been vaccinated what if ninety uh, percent what if one hundred percent how many lives would have been saved and that, I think, is a very reasonable question. Uh, the problem is in the methods that the paper uses to try to answer that question. Um, so, so the, the the most important fact, if you're going to answer a question like this, is the the is is who's unvaccinated, why are they unvaccinated, and what would the the con would would the vaccine vaccination do to the mortality risk of somebody uh, like that? And for how long? Right. So just to give you a sense of this, uh, um, there's a thousandfold or more difference in the risk of severe disease if you are uh, if you're if you're if you're older versus if you're younger. So uh, someone who's in their 80s, they've never had COVID before. They're unvaccinated. If they get COVID the first time, the, especially if they have multiple comorbid conditions, the mortality risk of dying from that bout with COVID might be five, six, 7%. It's very, very high. Whereas if a teenager or a, a, a child, if they get a bout with COVID, again, unvaccinated, never had COVID before, the risk of dying from COVID is very, 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 very low. So the, the, putative, the, the maximum benefit from being vaccinated, th- therefore, for a vaccine that does reduce the risk of, is a, 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 of severe disease and death will be much greater in absolute value for the, uh, the, the older person than for the young person. So if you have, you know, let's say it's 50% of teenagers or 19-year-olds are unvaccinated, but only 4% of older people are unvaccinated. Well, expanding vaccination in teenagers is not going to re- prevent that many deaths because teenagers don't die at very high rates from getting infected. So the vaccine doesn't reduce the risk of, of death by very much in that population. Um, a second complication around this is uh, that you, have, you need to know is, uh, is, has the patient that's unvaccinated, have they had COVID and recovered? Why is that important? Well, because if you've had COVID and recovered, there was at the time and, and even more now, more so now, a tremendous amount of evidence that found, that suggested that that, that that person, that COVID recovered person also has a very substantially lower risk of death in a subsequent COVID infection than, 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 than they might have faced in the first one, which they survived. I mean, you know, at least as effective as the vaccine, according to certain uh, studies. Uh, g- interesting, a uh, good, g- strong, strong epidemiological studies conducted in places like Israel, um, and, and many other. You know, it, I think Qatar has similar studies. Um, what they show is that is that if you've had COVID and recovered, you have substantial immunity and substantial protection. Again, severe disease and death, even on on subsequent reinfection, even if it's a different if it's a, var- a different variant, and so on. Natural immunity provides strong protection. So now you add vaccination on top of that. You may reduce the mortality risk some. Uh, there's dispute in the literature, but, but 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 by 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 how much? But once again, the amount by which the absolute amount by which you reduce it is going to be much lower than someone who's never been vaccinated, never had COVID before. Because the risk of dying from COVID is lower, much lower, for someone who's had COVID before and recovered. So you need to know those two facts if you're going to run a study like this. You need to know um, what's the age of the of the unvaccinated population, age structure of the unvaccinated population, and you need, need to know what the uh, what what the the, the, the probability what what, frac- what what fraction of each 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 age group or whatever uh, are they, are they have they had COVID and recovered. The group that wrote this paper had access to neither of those facts, and they made assumptions which, I mean, I just from a technical point of view, I think don't look plausible to me. Um, uh, so it's not surprising to me to, 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 when I looked into this to see that this paper hasn't yet has not yet been published, despite getting tremendous amount of media attention, uh, you know, a year ago. Uh, they don't have the the vaccination rates by age. They don't even mention natural immunity or immunity after COVID recovery in the paper at all. Um, they don't have the, uh, the, the county level aid structures. So, I mean, I just, I think there's like very, very important technical problems with this paper that sort of make it so it's impossible to really believe the bottom line number. It's, it's nice to say the bottom line number, you would have saved so X, X number of deaths, but I don't, I just don't think that this paper is evidence of that one way or the other. Um, there are other like technical problems with the paper. So, for instance, um, there's no decrease in their in their in the assumptions of the vaccine effectiveness against severe disease and death over time, whereas the epidemiological study suggests that after you know nine ten months there is some decrease unless you've had COVID bef- already before. Um, so, uh, you know, I think there's some severe technical problems with the paper that re- render it. Uh, you know, so I just, I wouldn't rely on it as a source for understanding how many lives were saved by the, um, uh, would have been saved had, had we vaccinated a larger fraction of the population. I, I will say, I think if you have a society where there's a lot of old people that weren't vaccinated and never had COVID before, and you didn't, you didn't vaccinate them, that is a place where you might have saved some lives. I think vaccination of the older population did save lives. The, a lot of lives. And the inadequate vaccination—if you ever—if your state or county or country that inadequately vaccinated its older population—you're—you're gonna—you—you you, you will have had through the three years of the pandemic a, a you know a fair bit of preventable death. Uh, for young people, I don't think that's true. I think young people, um, the vaccine very likely saved very few lives. And of course, there's side effects, sometimes severe side effects. Um, So that calculation would be, you know, it it, it would lead to a very different number. So a country that didn't vaccinate its six-month-olds, for instance, which is basically almost all the earth, including the United States, um, well, you're not going to have very many uh, preventable deaths just because we didn't vaccinate six-month-olds, because six-month-olds don't die at very, very high rates don't, don't die at very at, at very high rates from COVID infection. Um, the the, amount, the maximum amount you might have saved is very low. So I think um, throwing around this three hundred thousand number is was irresponsible on the part of the media. And if scientists are going spreading it around there, it's uh, without uh, having gone through the the caveat that I just went through. I think they're also doing an irresponsible thing. It's remarkable how many
0: seemingly credible scientists with decades of experience were using this number to you know promote vaccination i mean it's it's you know on one scenario you can promote vaccination and talk about what we know and what we don't know and use solid robust evidence but it's another case when you're using faulty statistics that have a number of technical problems to to then promote vaccination and then men and then many other people who I I won't name many intelligent people who are, you know, quote unquote, trusting the experts and also amplified these statistics on their podcasts and their publications and use that as um, a way to tell people to get vaccinated. And I think it's important to keep in mind the age gradient, you know, as well, as you mentioned, right, because in in many of these articles that I was reading that were looking at this claim or that they were looking at the specific analysis were. You know, at the time, this NPR article I'm reading uh, in 2022, at the time, there were about 650,000 COVID deaths. And, you know, it says that if 100% of adults were fully vaccinated, um, that there would have been 318,000 deaths that would have been prevented. But if you're not fully like, 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 like that's potentially misleading because, You know, if you have 100 percent of, let's say, uh, you know, know, men and women between the ages of 20 and 40, you know, not obese, healthy, no comorbidities. If you have 100 percent of people that fall in that category vaccinated, how many people are actually uh, how, how many lives are you actually saving? And from what I take from from what you said, that number is likely very low. Correct. Whereas the number for you know vaccinating everyone over the age of 80 the number of lives that you're saving could potentially be very large is that right
1: yep that's exactly right rob i mean it's it's it it the amount of lives saved you know as a max leaving aside side effects on the vaccine severe side effects on the vaccine um as as a as like at at most is bounded by the covid mortality risk and for older people, that COVID mortality risk is much higher. For people who've never had COVID before, the COVID mortality risk is much higher. And if I mean, if you're going to do a, a rigorous calculation of how many lives would have been saved had we vaccinated more, you have to take that into account. And unfortunately, this paper just doesn't do that. And
0: since you know you mentioned young people as well, obviously young people are at far lower risk, but. One thing that I've written about recently is about obesity rates in the United States. I mean, you know, many people are asking, why does the U.S. have such a high rate of COVID deaths, whereas other countries don't? And then one, you know, major factor. And I'm actually curious if you think there are other major factors at play that differentiate the U.S. from other countries. But one major factor is obesity. Right. In the United States, about 40 percent of the population is obese something like 60 to 70% of the population is obese or overweight. And I was just looking at the rates for, for young people, for teenagers, ages 10 to 17. The obesity rate is about 20%. Now, if you, you know, what, what, what do you think could the potential risk benefit analysis be like from, from a population level perspective, right? If you're vaccinating every teenager between the ages of, 10 and 17 that is obese, I mean, could you then potentially, you know, save a lot of lives or, you know, or, or is the risk so low still that, that we don't really know? I mean, I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty here, and so it's hard to, you know, predict or to make extrapolations from very limited data. But, you know, there, there are many risk factors involved that make this picture very confusing to understand.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, obesity is one of those things where, where, um, so I, I have a rule of thumb based on what I've seen of that of the of the of the of the, of the uh, literature that characterizes the mortality risk from COVID infection. Um, if you've had, uh, if you're if you're uh, for for every seven years of age, roughly speaking, maybe eight years of age, the risk of dying from COVID infection, if you if you get COVID, doubles right so uh in 2020 based on the the, the this 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 vast literature of, of seroprevalence prevalence me- used to estimate the covid um infection fatality rate um roughly speaking l- l- let's say in you know people can dis- dispute the specific numbers but i'll just give you some ballpark um roughly speaking someone who's 50 years old has a COVID infection fatality rate of, had an infection fatality rate of about 0.2 percent so 99.8 percent survival in 2020 uh, This is in 2020 where, where uh, you're, if you're taking a population of people that have not previously been infected, for every seven years of age, it doubles the risk right So for a 57 year old maybe the risk, could be 0.4%. For a 64-year-old, the risk would be 0.4 percent for a 64 year old, the risk would be 0.8 percent you know and so on. And it halves in the other direction. So a 43-year-old, it'll be 0.1%. For a 36-year-old, it'll be 0.05%. By the time you get down to a teenager, you're talking about very, very, very low rates of infection fatality rate, right? So the age structure really matters. Every seven years, doubling. Uh, at the same time, obesity, I think, doubles the uh, it, you know just again this is my gestalt based on this literature again there may, you may you may dispute exactly the the the, the exact precise amount, amount but it's just, it's on this order um, it doubles the infection fatality rate so an obese 50 year old who remember i said av- would average 0.2% might have a 0.4% uh, infection fatality rate it's like aging 7 years uh, so if you take a teenager who's 12 and you have an, that, that teenager is a, uh, a thir- I'm sorry, thirteen or something, so like a young teenager, and you age them seven years. You go from a very small number to another very small number. So you probably won't save very many wow. lives by vaccinating just obese teenagers. It is true that vaccinating obese teenagers will save more lives than just vaccinating a, 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 a thin teenager, but that's a different thing. Um, but you do bring, I mean, I think the broader point, and I think you 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 highlight this well, Rav you have to understand the health status of the individuals that you're asked, you're, you're doing the study about and 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 their link of the health status to the risk they face from covid and any study that, that is going to be going to ask answer this question needs to take a stance about that make some some stab at that based on what the literature says and then document where there's uncertainty uh, about that and document when there's where, where there where there's more more certainty uh, and just and tell the reader the range of of of, of assumptions and, and sensitivity analyses that that would lead you to maybe to a different answer under different assumptions when in based on what the what the literature says. Um, this paper doesn't do that. This paper doesn't talk about the risk of comorbidities. This paper uh, doesn't talk about it d- doesn't talk about uh, immunity after COVID recovery in any of its estimates. Um, and so you just I just I, again I'm not faulting no i never fault a scientist for writing paper um that, uh, that that's not that's not right i mean they're, they're i think they're doing the best they can um and it's worthwhile to read it so you can understand sort of more what the uncertainties are uh that's fine um the problem is like if you want a a, a answer that you can trust well i would I'd, I'd want to see a paper do more than what this paper did um the the the, the fault here is i think on the part of the, the news media, which ran with this number three hundred thousand number based on a, a preprint that has i think faulty methodology um and then for scientists who uh you know many of whom are in the pay of of, of pharmaceutical companies that, that that have vaccines um to push this number as if they were a true number without um, without uh, you know sort of uh, tell, actually going through the study and ta- and applying their scientific expertise as to what the what the, uh, how, the science, uh, how the science of the study might be improved.
0: This reminds me of an infamous uh, Mark Twain quote. There are three kinds of lies, lies, damn lies, and statistics, <laughs> and oftentimes you see in the media and you see often in common parlance, you know, people using statistics and treating them to be of, of absolute authoritative value when sometimes as in this example, it may not be. And I, I think that's important for people to realize when they're using um, these statistical figures that sometimes it's, it's far more complicated than just, you know, 97% this, 1% risk of this, 2% risk of this, like, like e- even when you're talking about, you know, um, for every seven years, the risk doubles, e- even that arguably, you know, could be misleading. And I, I know you're not saying this, but s- say you have, you know, um, you know, a 54-year-old, and let's say his risk is, you know, 0.2%. You add seven years, and you have uh, a 61-year-old. You know, is his risk going to be 0.4%? I mean, you know, what if that 61-year-old is, you know, healthy weight, exercising regularly, taking supplements, taking care of his diet, whereas the 54-year-old isn't? You know, that 61-year-old could have could have lower risk compared to the 54-year-old, but you know, obviously we're talking in aggregate sort of population level statistics that is, is, is very different in reality when you can't just compare, you know, me to someone who's 30 or someone who's my age when there is a host of differences between every individual of different age groups. Right. So, so would you agree that sometimes these statistics can obscure a vast complexity of differentiating factors that that make the risk very, very different for every individual, despite sort of broad population-level risks that we find in the data?
1: Absolutely, Rob. I mean, I think what you hit on is actually a very, very deep point, and it, it relates to the the link between scientific work uh, and both public health and medical practice, right? So medical practice, uh, you have to, your responsibility in medical practice is to take the scientific literature and translate it to the individual you see in front of you, your patient. Uh, and your patient has a lot of characteristics, risk factors, behaviors, all that stuff that may impinge, almost certainly does impinge on the risks that they face. The, the 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 scientific literature is a is a guide to your patient but is not the same thing as your patient. And you have to adjust for the patient you see in front of you. You're absolutely right. So a healthier someone who's who's uh, you know, trim and fit 61-year-old may have a much lower uh risk of 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 dying if they're infected with COVID than someone who's fifty four, that's absolutely true. Uh, it, there's a range. Every every single thing in medicine has a distribution. It's not it's not certain cer- certain that uh, you're going to die from it. There's a there's a probability risk probability distribution over of 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 uh, of, of risks, and uh, part of the art of medicine is tra- taking the scientific literature and translating for the patient you see in front of you. Uh, in public health, it's actually similar, right, except that now you're talking about advice given to a very large number of people at scale. You have to be very then careful about the kind of advice you give because um, you may give advice that's correct for some, some part of the population but incorrect for the other. The only solution to that is, is trustworthy, being trustworthy, telling, t- giving as much nuance as, as possible, uh, treating, your, treating people as adults um oversimplifying uh, telling noble lies that's not the way forward for public health the way forward is to uh, to 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 characterize the a complicated scientific literature in ways that are that, that that's clear but doesn't doesn't oversimplify doesn't um, have the effect of misleading people simply because you want them to get to do something that, you know, do, 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 you know, you know, for instance, you know, get, get the vaccine, stay home and uh, stay home and self quarantine, you know, even though you're not sick or whatever, whatever it is you want them to do, you should, you, you, you have to be clear and honest in public health. Um, It's a, it's a complicated, difficult thing to do. Translate from, the, the nuances of, of the scientific literature, which are often have tremendous uncertainties to public health settings and medical settings. Um, and you know, it's, it's because it's so hard, you have to, you have to, uh, you, you have to, uh, you have to work very hard to, to practice at it, get better and better at it. Uh, it, it takes a, a lot of subtlety and nuance. Um, so I mean, and, and you know, it's, it's hard. So I, 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 I although I may sometimes come across as like being very, Critical of my colleagues in public health um, when they when they make mistakes, I I just I I do have a lot of sympathy for what the kind of problem they face. You know, I I too face that same problem of trying to convey the scientific literature I've read in ways that respect that literature while still making it accessible to 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 different audiences. Uh, When I criticize people like Tony Fauci, it's because I think that he it has not lived up to the professional standards that I would expect someone like him in his position to live up to in doing exactly that job.
0: Right. And, and that is a challenge, right? When you're talking about, you know, population level statistics and you're trying to make broad recommendations, like, you know, I, I've even been reflecting a bit on, you know, things that I've been, you know, saying, and I, I still stand by them. And I know you, you probably stand by things that you've said too, but, but, but even, you know like my general default in writing various articles it's like for you know immunocompromised obese and elderly people it likely makes sense to get vaccinated for you know young people under 20 30 or 40 the case is far more complicated and, and potentially and perhaps likely the risks um, outweigh the benefits but but again it, it's highly um, it, it, you know it's highly individualized and you know it, it, it could be the case. Like, like it's it's very difficult to say, you know, everyone over sixty should get vaccinated. Every, you know, anyone under twenty shouldn't get vaccinated. You know, like hypothetically, so you know, there there might be many people over sixty who are incredibly healthy and fit, for whom getting vaccinated is not as clear cut as it is for other people over sixty. So it's it's hard to, you know, give you know one message or you know one standard recommendations when human beings you know vary so widely across different health metrics and and that that is one concern that public health authorities seem to to have is pragmatically how do you address such a diverse and widely ranging um, population uh, when you have so many differences how do you you know you know make recommendations and I, I think you know you're right in talking about um, the, the the nuances because you know even for some of these groups that you and I and many others have said, well, like almost certainly makes sense to get vaccinated if you're elderly. You know, one you know, one thing that Alex Berenson has, has has talked about in his reporting is like there's actually a subset of people of of elderly people, um, you know, in their 80s or 90s who are on the verge of death, um, who have a number of risk factors, who are you know at the end of their lives, and for them it doesn't make sense to get vaccinated because anything, the virus itself, obviously, but even a vaccine could tip them over because their immune systems are so weak. So even that could be misleading, right? If you say everyone over 60 or 70, you should get vaccinated. Well, but there's also this other group that maybe shouldn't get vaccinated. Like, uh, do you, do you agree with that?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, the way that I've, I've talked about it in many settings during the pandemic uh, is the, the, what, what we should have done with the vaccine is told patients to go see their doctor and ask them if the vaccine was right for them. The, the, their doctor would have, if, if we allowed doctors to do their job, they, they would have you know absorbed the, the, the medical literature that that showed the high risk of old to old people, the low risk to, to, to young people from, the, from COVID. That um, They would have absorbed the, 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 the vaccine literature with its limitations about its efficacy for against severe disease and death, uh, but not so much efficaces against tra- disease transmission. Um, and, and they would have made nuanced recommendations based on, on the, the preferences and the risk factors that their patients face. That's what we should have done. We should have told people to go see their doctor and then let doctors give recommendations based on, on the, the art of medical practice. Instead, we decided, public health decided, uh, governments decided, politicians decided to coerce vast populations to get vaccinated, on the premise that the, if everyone got vaccinated, the disease would go away. In fact, you know, uh, you you mentioned this early on in our podcast something that Mayor Bowser said. Um, she said in, in, that, in that now infamous PBS uh, documentary, she said, if thousands of people like you don't get vaccinated, you're going to let this virus continue to percolate in this country and, and in this world. She was essentially saying, everyone, if everyone just obeyed, went along, got the vaccine, COVID would disappear. Well, that was never true. That's not what the scientific evidence said. We've only ever, through intentional action, uh, eradicated a single human infectious disease smallpox and only one other disease uh, the, of, of, of it was actually a disease of animals minderpest um, we through and so and this vaccine, and this vaccine you didn't know it was going to get rid of transmission it did, it's not sterilizing didn't, we didn't know it was if it was sterilizing she didn't know enough to be able to promise that and so this the same thing with this paper like right? you know what um, you get the vaccine. You, it, the paper looks at what happens in you know in, a, in, a, in, a, in the, the the time period between January 2021, when the vaccine comes out, and, and like I think it was March or April 2022. Well, the risk continues into the future. It's a it's a, you, it, you keep having COVID floating around. Um, the vaccine changes in efficacy over time because it's not it's not a permanent vaccine. Um, you you get you get reinfected. That also has a, a change in the the, the risks that you face in the future, it's always going to be complicated. It's only, you only would recommend this sort of population-wide vaccine if you knew for certain that it was going to be something that's important to, to uh, re- make, to, to, to reduce the, the risk of, tra- of, of transmission and circulation of the disease. You don't know that it should be a personal medical choice with a very strong recommendation to your doctor to go see your doctor so that you can get that nuanced advice that you really need.
0: This leads us to our second last news item. Uh, Rochelle Walensky at a recent congressional hearing was asked by U.S. Representative Andrew Clyde about um, the shift in views on vaccination and what Walensky was saying at this point, it's clear vaccines don't stop transmission. And so she was asked, well, what about your position a year or two ago when you said Uh, vaccines do stop transmission. It's very rare for people to get infected after being vaccinated. You know, people turn into dead ends for the virus. And she said, well, this is an evolution of the science, right? The science at the time said (laughs) that vaccine, that the vaccine would stop transmission. Now the science has evolved and that's no longer true. And there is obviously some truth to that, right? But, 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 but it's, It's a little more precise and a little more nuanced than what she's saying. So it's true at the time, right, when when the vaccines were rolled out and for a few months afterwards, it was reasonable to expect that vaccines may stop transmission or may significantly reduce transmission or to some degree or another, reliably reduce transmission, right? But the crucial word there is may. It, It may do that. And there's some evidence to suggest that it would do that. And now the science has evolved as, as time has, has gone on several months after the vaccine has been rolled out, that the vaccines no longer do that. So it's true that the science has evolved, but not in the sense that we knew for a fact at the time that vaccines eliminated uh, transmission of the virus. And now uh, we know that it doesn't. Rather, at the time, it was very uncertain and fairly quickly it became clear more and more that that was not going to be the case. And so, again, we've already talked about this, this, this false sort of arrogant certainty that many of these public health experts had at the time was completely unwarranted, right?
1: I mean, I think one, one thing that is important to, in, the, in that conversation is, you know, uh, science does change in, in the sense of new evidence comes out and people change their minds on the face of that new evidence. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. So she, what she's saying uh, is essentially like citing a a virtue of science to defend her, her, her uh, defend herself in front of Congress. The problem is that that she she's citing that virtue in in support of a lie, right? The lie was that we knew that the vaccine stopped transmission in January 2021. Well, we didn't know that in January 2021. When she went on the air uh, multiple times on um, in 2021, essentially telling people that the vaccines would, would, would stop you from getting COVID. There were prominent media personalities that would stop you from, from getting and transmitting COVID. All of that was premised on nothing. There wasn't science then. So it's not true that it actually evolved. The science didn't evolve in the exact, and you said it really well, Ralph, the, the science didn't evolve in the direction that, she, that, she, that she's implying by her answer in Congress. It, it in fact evolved from we didn't know whether it would stop transmission in December of 2020 to we knew pretty sure by like I'd say April May June 2021 that it wouldn't stop transmission. So uh, you know if you're if you're reading clear, carefully the scientific evidence the macro evidence and the epidemiological studies are coming out at the time. Um, so I, and the other another really important fact. Um, the, December, the trials, when they were published in t- December of 2020, the, 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 you know, the Pfizer and Moderna trials, they only followed patients for two months, Rob. Not enough time to know with any certainty whether it's permanently going to reduce, even if it stopped transmission in those two months, would it be a permanent reduction in transmission? Well, I mean, again, there's uncertainty there, right? Um, she runs roughshod over all that uncertainty all through 2021 in her public statements. And so to now in 2023, turn around and say, "Well, the science evolved, and therefore I changed my mind." I mean, yeah, if, if it was true that, that that was that that you ad- accurately, you Rochelle Walensky had accurately conveyed the science in 2021 to the public, you could have that excuse. But when you didn't have uh, convey it accurately to the to the public in 2021, the right answer there is to say, "Well, I was I was I was wrong to convey." Uh, over-certainty about what the science actually said than, than was warranted. I should have at the time said, uh, we don't know based on the scientific evidence that we have available to us. I think you're right to point out earlier
0: that scientists, when they get things wrong, they need to admit to that, and they need to make the necessary concessions, and that that that, that bolsters trust in public health authorities, right? Like If, if I, you know, if, the, if Rochelle Walensky comes out tomorrow or Fauci comes out tomorrow saying, oh, we were we were irresponsible in inflating or or overly promoting the the benefits of vaccination. And and current data shows that that was not warranted. I'm going to be much more likely to believe and to respect and to understand where they're coming from, whereas if they're going to play this game of, oh, well, the science said that now it's changed. Therefore, I'm actually doing the right thing. I'm following the scientific method, right? That makes me now psychologically far more averse, skeptical, and, and just annoyed and, and frustrated with any future things that they might say. Like, like, that is my bias. And in order, you know, for me as a, as a citizen, uh, you know, as an ordinary person, in order to rebuild my trust, I need you to concede where you've gotten things wrong and to admit, Certain faults in your assumptions, and then I'm going to gain much more respect for you. And for some people, and for some reason rather, people are only looking at the other side of the equation. Well, people need to, you know, trust these experts more. They need to, you know, stop listening to Joe Rogan, start listening to Peter Hotez and Fauci and all these people. Like, no, no, no. It's the the public health authorities have to regain the public's trust. And and obviously, you're not going to win over everybody. They're they're going to be crazy anti-vax lunatics, you know, all the time. But what we saw throughout the pandemic was not only that group of, you know, fringe people who, you know, never want anything to do with any vaccine, but many people like myself who had gotten other vaccines who are ordinary, reasonable people devoted to science, to, to, to understanding themselves and the world around them, they became very skeptical of this whole process because of how public
1: health let us down. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, as, as, as we've said through this whole podcast, um, trust is it, tr- trust is the most important thing that public health actually has. And when it loses the trust of the public, it's going to be ineffective. Uh, I don't blame you for for responding to this, Rob, as, and with ne- like deep and skept- deep, deep skepticism about the pronouncements of public health. They fully earned it.
0: Okay, we have a couple of things to talk about here um, before we wrap up this podcast. Um, First, the the interview in the New York Times by David Wallace-Wells. He's interviewing Fauci um, and talking about a number of, of issues throughout the pandemic. And there's one key area that many people have been highlighting that is very, very interesting So David Wallace Wells asks Fauci about masking, um, about the effectiveness of masking and what he thinks in retrospect. And he says, quote, from a broad public health standpoint, at the population level, masks work at the margins, maybe 10 percent. But for an individual who religiously wears a mask, a well fitted KN95 or N95, it's not at the margin. It really does work now that from <laughs> looking back on how the, the, the messaging on masking was conducted, that that is not at all the message that I received like that that like might work at 10 percent on the margins. That was never the narrative. It was always mask up. And if you don't, you're going to kill grandma like this is you must do this. It's mandated. You can't enter a restaurant. You can't board a flight. I mean, I mean literally I can actually just share my experience here briefly. Um, I think I was on a flight from LA to uh, DC. I was going on Tim Poole's podcast after doing uh, Adam Carolla and Dr. Drew's podcast in LA. This was in uh, fall of 2021. and I remember getting on the plane, I was wearing my mask and throughout the flight, multiple times this particular particular this one flight attendant, kept on berating me over and over again because I would put my mask down below uh, my nostrils because I have a deviated septum. So it's hard to breathe. And I, I'm wearing this, this um, you know, standard cloth mask that, you know, obviously is not very effective. And, I, and I'm just putting it underneath, you know, my nostrils and repeatedly he's coming up to me. And I, I think it was the second time or the third time. And I was telling him I'm, I'm having a hard time, you know, breathing and, you know. My family doctor also knows I have a deviated septum. Like this is like, this is a legit medical issue. And it's really hard to breathe for the next you know four hours if I have something covered over my nose. And he says, no, no, you have to do this in order to protect the people around you. And he gave me this notice. I forget what exactly it said, but the notice said something like um, there, there might be potential consequences. You might not ever be able to fly on, I think it was American Airlines, I believe. But it's basically this notice saying that because I had failed to follow these stringent mask mandates that therefore I potentially wouldn't be allowed to fly on this airline again. So so I mean, and obviously, this was been pushed down federally by the public health authorities and by governments, again, not as something that may work at 10 percent effectiveness on the margins, but rather something with clear concrete, robust efficacy that everyone must follow in order to protect themselves and those around them. So it's it's remarkable that Fauci would say that now to the New York Times, given how uh, the narrative has been so, you know, strict, draconian and mandated on, on masking over the past couple of years.
1: I mean, if you look back on the pronouncements that, uh, that Tony Fauci has made about masks, it just boggles the mind. It had nothing to do with the scientific literature, right? So, the, in the scientific literature before the pandemic, uh, there had been a, 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 a you know, that, that, that the, the Cochrane Collaborative had done a review of the masking literature uh, and published before the pandemic regarding the efficacy of uh, the, the the effectiveness of masks, you know, the, the ability of masks to stop the transmission of influenza. Uh, and there were a dozen randomized studies, or you know, a fair, a fair number of randomized studies of, of varying quality, but like some good ones, uh, looking to see if that the whether masking or, or uh, required masking had very much effect on on population spread of influenza. And when the answer was, they couldn't find a very big effect. Um, that was before the pandemic. So the, the the conclusion, the, the scientific consensus, if you're going to say there was one before the pandemic, was much more along the lines of masks are not a good thing for public health to recommend at scale because there's no good evidence that they work to stop disease spread for highly infectious respiratory viruses. Um, and so when the, the pandemic started, and Tony Fauci came out and said, well, "You don't need a mask. Masks mask don't work. You 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 you, you mask tend to you tend to touch your face more. It might actually make, make things worse." Um, he was reflecting the scientific consensus at the time accurately in, say, February of 2020 when he said that. Later in the pandemic, uh, he, he turns around and says, oh, no, I was, I was actually lying to you then. Um, I wanted to spare the masks, especially high-quality N95 masks, for people working in hospital settings. And uh, really, I, I lied to, the, to you, the public, because it was good for you that I lied to you. That, uh, that 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 uh, so that I uh, that, that by lying to you, you didn't you didn't go out and hoard masks, and then the the masks were available for people who really needed them. That is, you know, uh, frontline healthcare workers. I mean, that was an extraordinary admission. He's it's, it's, admitting admitting that 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 he lied to the the, the public. Uh, essentially, I think for many people, it undermined the trust that they had in him. Like, okay, he's the kind of public health official that will lie to me. Um, but actually, the irony is, when he said that, he was, it, he was lying in two ways. He, what he had told before was actually the truth. It was the new idea that masks work, that some, some evidence had all, all of a sudden had been developed that showed that masks work. That itself was another separate lie. It wasn't new evidence. And as randomized studies started coming, coming out during the pandemic, um, from places like uh, the, the 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 from Denmark and then there was that Bangladesh study that the huge Bangladesh study that, that people sold as if it were proven mass work but in fact the uh, the efficacy was you know pretty pretty close to 10 percent um, uh, and and then uh, and then you had the, that mass study from Guin, uh, Guinea uh, Bissau, I think um, again three randomized studies with the mass and COVID found that that there's no you couldn't find any evidence in there that the masks were particularly effective at stopping transmission at, at the population level. Um, the, and, and now there were a lot of like crappy mechanical studies. You know, one one famous one involving mannequins, or or like small scale, essentially anecdotes. So, oh, this this uh, this hairdresser, uh, the, the, this hairdresser study, which is like essentially one or two hairdressers uh, that were masked up that didn't spread the disease. Um, I mean, I I think that kind of crappy, uh, you know, excuse my language, but that kind of like low quality uh, scientific studies should not form the basis for wide, you know, nationwide or, or worldwide public health recommendations. Um, and you heard Tony Fauci through the pandemic, he would he would like latch on to studies like those, those low quality studies, or he would, or he like am- like go far beyond them. Like there was at one point, I don't know if you saw this, Rob, where he talked about wearing two masks. Wow, two masks might be better than one. Uh, you know, it just makes common sense, or, or or wearing goggles to protect the threat of the disease. I mean, there was no evidence for any of this. And so now to turn around and say, oh uh, well, we all, we always knew it was just ten percent, only at the margin. I mean, is This is just something else. Like it's just it's it's just a it's a dereliction of his duty of of uh, it's a dereliction of his responsibility as um the uh, a presidential advisor on public health as as the, the the main source that the media goes to 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 talk about the scientific literature on masking in this way. Um, it should never you know it's one of these things where like. Masking should never have been a central front or, or central recommendation public health did. It, should, it, it, it wasted the opportunity for public health to focus on things that might have mattered, protecting nursing homes better. Like there's only a limited amount of energy that public health has and the public has to listen to public health. Public health should be focused on the most highly efficacious uh, uh, things that, are, that have the best scientific evidence behind them and don't waste their time on marginal things. I mean, let's say it's true that that, that number he says, ten percent, is the right number. Well, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not know this for for true, but let's say it is. Well, then public health should never bothered with it. Instead, they turned this into this like, uh, this like central front on the ba- battle of, of, with COVID, and a very large number of people looking at said, look, I know lots of people who got who wore masks, got it anyways, um, got the disease anyways, um, mass they are are became this sort of. Cultural touchstone um, in the United States, anyways, where where it was like a talisman of, of, of political belonging, rather than actually, having mean, much to do with public health. I, it, it was it was just it's, that is just a failure of public health. They, they the, the, the emphasis on masking wasted energy that should have been better spent on other things and divided the population against itself in ways that public health should never ought to do. The failure on the part of, of Tony Fauci, and you know, it's just amusing to hear him talk about. Oh, and now we all knew that it was 10% all along.
0: Mm. I mean, do you remember what your line was at the time? Um, like in, you know, by summer of say 2020, were you very pro-mask or pro-mask mandate? Or like, did your views shift at all throughout the pandemic on masking? Or I, I
1: mean, were I, you... I, so I, I, I thought at the time that masking was not a central front. I, I, you know, I looked at the literature and I wasn't impressed with it. But I didn't want to expend a lot of energy on, ma- on, on advocacy for or against masking in summer of 2020. Um, and because I was so focused on, on lockdowns actually, in summer of 2020, I was still focused on measurement of, of the infect, uh, infection fatality rate. I was still focused on, on the harms of lockdowns, um, and I was really, really focused on the importance of school opening um, that, I, that I foresaw what, that, that wouldn't happen in the United States and elsewhere. Um, so those were the topics that I was most focused on. When I when asked about masks, I tried to just not talk about it because I wanted public health to just not to to, to de-emphasize it. Um, in September of 2020, in a roundtable with Governor DeSantis, uh, he asked me specifically about the evidence on masking, and I and I told him what the scientific what, what I just told you earlier that the scientific evidence didn't particularly uh, uh, warrant a lot of uh, uh, a lot of energy on masking. So, uh, I mean, I'd say, like, I, I'm still mystified how masking turned out, to, 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 like, public health took on masking as a central tool when the evidence never said to do that. Um, I, and, but to me, the more, uh, in 2020, the more important fights were the fights over, over lockdowns, school closures, um, you know, the, the things that were, like, really damaging the lives of, of, the ch- of children, the working class, the poor. There's a quote from Joe
0: Rogan that I vividly remember, and I just looked it up just to double check. Um, he he said, um, I think maybe a month or two ago on his podcast, just just perfectly said it that masking became or masks became the Democrats and liberals' MAGA hat, right? It was signaling, <laughs> signaling, <laughs> signaling political loyalty towards a certain perspective on COVID and of, you know, social and and public policy in general, anyone who didn't go along with it, they were a heretic, they were right wing, they were conservative, they were libertarian, they were Trump supporters, like all these different things, not wearing a mask or defying mask mandates became synonymous with right wing conspiracy theory. And wearing a mask was a sign of sympathy, empathy, taking care of people, science, evidence, and so, you know, it, it, just, be, it just became kind of the signaling device broadly for people to show how much they, they care for other people and that they're looking out for the vulnerable. And so, you know, they, therefore it became so, you know, deeply politicized.
1: I mean, I think that's true. I mean, I, I, uh, uh, if you go spend any time traveling the country in 2020, 2020 and 2021, it was really clear when you were in a red area or a blue area right the 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 uh, in blue areas people would look at you funny if you didn't wear a mask sometimes they would like violently confront you uh, from from the evidence of videos i saw um and and uh, you know actually i, I would uh, uh, i've had the the honor of being able to go testify in front of congress a few times during the pandemic and actually go visit uh, visit the uh, washington dc to do it and it's it was striking during the pandemic You could tell who was a Democratic staffer and who was a Republican staffer by whether they were wearing a mask in the halls of Congress. Democrats wore them, Republicans didn't wear them. It was a political talisman, not anything to do with actual science.
0: Right, agreed. Okay, our last news item of the day, FDA uh, Commissioner um, Dr. Robert Califf Recently, in an interview and in other places, has said that misinformation is now a leading cause of death in the United States, and that social media companies, um, online platforms, need to do a better job of regulating uh, online information and cracking down on on purveyors of misinformation. And, um you know, many people have commented on this, like Dr. Vinay Prashad was commenting online, like, you know, where's the evidence for this? Like, how are we making these claims without any clear, concrete evidence? And, you know, for me, Jay, like just looking at this, you know, the FDA commissioner, you know, calling out misinformation. I mean, to me, it's incredibly ironic and hypocritical for someone of that authority who has consistently, in my view, gotten so many things wrong and provided and you know, pervade so much misinformation on their part to, to be accusing other people of misinformation. I mean, throughout the pandemic, um, you know, with the, the approval of the bivalent vaccine, I mean, that alone, right. It was approved, uh, based on testing in, in mice, they, they approved the bivalent booster and not only did they approve it and like, um, recommend it as a potential or as a you know just an option for people to do rather it was based on this limited mice data everyone should go get the bivalent booster kids teenagers young adults older people obese non-obese healthy unhealthy doesn't matter you need the bivalent booster and then the white house which is deeply entrenched with the fda they were tweeting out from their accounts and joe biden was tweeting out like it's the holidays are coming, it's Thanksgiving, it's Christmas. and get this updated bivalent booster to protect yourself and to protect grandma despite a lack of evidence and so for someone in his position to then accuse other people of misinformation, it, it just it, it doesn't make sense because throughout the pandemic, the FDA to me has really shown its colors, and many people like myself were blind to the amount of misinformation that they were spewing. I mean, so much so that two of their top senior officials resigned. Um, I believe this was around December of 2021. They, they resigned due to what, what they said was political pressure to uh, promote the third booster shot to everyone, including young adults who, who there, there was no clear um, evidence for, for benefit. Right? You had two senior pro, you know, pro-vaccine FDA officials who left the institution because of political pressure, right? This, this, this whole agency has continually spread misinformation and has been politically compromised. And so I don't trust for a second or take seriously for a second when the FDA commissioner comes out and says that other people spreading misinformation is now resulting in in many deaths. It's like, you know, maybe you should look in the mirror and be better with the information that you're providing.
1: (laughs) I mean, um, We've been just talking about nonstop this whole whole uh, whole uh, podcast about misinformation spread by high officials in public health. Uh, it, I agree with you on this. Uh, it's fun. It's ironic and funny actually, because right after Robert Caleb says um, that the, uh, a leading cause of death in the United States is misinformation, the the FDA itself had to like backtrack and say, "Well, look, we don't actually have a we don't actually have data to document this." He's just, he's, it's his impression, um, and and you're absolutely right to point out the irony. So much of the misinformation that has spread virally during this pandemic has stemmed has come from high public health officials, right? So the uh, immunity after COVID recovery, the effectiveness of of mask mandates in stopping the spread of the disease, the feasibility, the, the possibility of zero COVID, um, the fa- the idea that we are all equally at risk from dying from covid if we get it uh, rather than with this 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 very steep age stratification um that that school closures were effective and costless vaccines stopped transmission you know you can go on and on and on and many of these were really damaging they actually might have actually ended up killing people right just take mass as a good example of this right so imagine somebody who's in their 70s uh, listens to tony fauci says mass work put in 2020 uh, before the vaccines, they 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 go out in public wearing a cloth mask, thinking they're protected, and they, which they wouldn't have otherwise done because there's high community spread at some point. Well, I mean, those people might actually have gotten infected they otherwise wouldn't have, and the 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 rather than protecting themselves because they're high risk during times of high community spread, they go out in public feeling confident that the that the mask can protect them from getting a disease that the mask don't protect them from. That misinformation actually did kill people, I think. Um, so I, th- I think it's it's one of these things where, like, you got, okay, misinformation. Uh, the right thing to do for public health officials isn't to de- decry the fact that there's a few people who are saying that, you know, the vaccines make you magnetic or whatever. That's the kind of misinformation I think he had in mind. The right thing to do is to build yourself and uh, uh, others in public health as uh, as trustworthy by telling the public the truth, treating them like adults, and then, when you have that trust, then you can then you can turn around and say, "Well, we've been hearing this uh, thing about uh, you know uh, about vaccines making you magnetic. It's just not true." And here's how. And then tr- the public will believe you. Instead, they have uh, the public health authorities have spread themselves, spread misinformation, destroyed public trust in them, and thereby uh, destroyed their ability to correct other forms of misinformation that that spread around the public.
0: Hmm. I totally agree with you. And I, I think I think that's a good note to, to, to end this. I mean, in general, you know, throughout COVID, epidemiologists, uh, MDs, PhDs, you know, people of different scientific stripes, I think the takeaway message here is having more humility, more honesty, not treating people as dumb young children who need simple, you know, black and white messaging, but rather providing nuanced information so that people can make their own individualized um, risk-benefit calculations alongside their doctors and their medical uh, professionals, that is is something that I think people in the public health community need to uh, better understand is that is what has caused so much of the distrust and the hesitancy and the loss of, of institutional power in this realm is the fact that they have treated people like there are young children who need to be, you know, given these simplistic messages, I I think generally for, you know, for, for anyone too. I mean, I mean, outside of science too, we can take a step back in, in, well, 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 you know, even within, I mean, in, in social science, for example, when it came to, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests, or when it comes to gender issues, racial issues, uh, historical issues, there should be far more humility in the way people talk about these things. Um, you, know, you know, even in religion, I mean, this, this is something that I'm studying right now in school, you know, across religions and even, you know, within religions, you often see people, you know, Catholics and Protestants, Hindus and Christians, you know, Buddhists and Muslims, this sort of this absolute arrogant, you know, um, promotion of, of, of the, not just, you know, our scriptures are true and yours are wrong, but our reading of this one particular passage is more right than your reading of this passage. Not to say that there's no such thing as objective truth or there is no room to, you know, have theological debates and whatnot, but oftentimes you do see this very kind of uh, sickening kind of just, you know, arrogance on the people of, uh, on the part of people within, you know, religious institutions and and broadly other institutions when they claim absolute authority and deem anyone who disagrees with them as, as heretics who deserve to be marginalized and ostracized. I mean, re- really, when it comes to anything in life, I mean, we're constantly evolving our perspectives. I mean, every day, you know, we're, we're constantly changing our perspective. We're being surprised. We're being shocked. We're being stunned. You know, we might have associated, you know, someone in our family or someone in our social circles or some politician as being, you know, totally wrong about these things or being, Um, you know, potentially racist or misogynistic or X, Y, or Z and and suddenly they surprise us and, you know, go against our our preconceived notions of what they might be. You know, we see this in in, in religious traditions too. People have assumptions about, you know, you know, Christians being a certain way or Muslims being a certain way or Hindus being a certain way. But when they actually talk to these people and start learning about other ways of approaching reality, you know, suddenly they, they have far more respect and humility in their own perspective, so I, I think I think broadly this is something that everyone should take away within and outside of the scientific community and within people's lives in general right we're all a, a working process trying to figure things out and we shouldn't be so married to our ideas and we should be open to learning new ideas and to changing our ideas and recognizing when you know not only when we're wrong you know as, as we've talked about but also, you know understanding that many things that we think that we're right about you know the evidence could drastically change tomorrow and we need to update our views rather than being religiously tied to these ideas and defending them at all costs which is what's what seems to be the approach that that public health authorities have taken throughout the pandemic
1: yep you, i mean i think that is that really is the bottom line humility honesty, uh, respect. That's how. That's the path forward for public health. If it's ever going to get back its ability to actually protect the public's health, it's going to need to recommit to those those basic principles. Jay, this is a
0: great conversation. Uh, this podcast is going to be shortly released after we've wrapped this up. Uh, we're launching in a couple days. Um, I think many people are going to enjoy listening to this and gain a uh, new insight. So I'm, I'm glad that we uh, recorded this productive conversation and I, I look forward to uh, further conversations with you.
1: Thanks a lot, Rob. Next time. All right.